0: Ephesians chapter 1. I think what I'm going to do for context sake, I'm going to read the entire chapter and then we're going to pick up and we're going to go verse by verse through the last uh, verses starting in verse 15. So, Ephesians chapter 1, it's a short chapter, it's only 23 verses. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Remember, take your little wax pencil and highlight in your New Testament everywhere you see those two words, in Christ. It's very, very important for you to understand what we have, we have in Christ. Verse 4, just as He, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we also who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. After I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. So Paul is writing here to this church in this town called Ephesus. I love the book of Ephesians because it, in this very short little book, in this short letter, Paul packs so much in here that is so relevant for us. And remember last week we talked about that Paul begins this letter and he goes all the way back before the creation and he is revealing the purpose of God, the plan of God, the will of God that God had in himself. In Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, before there was any material thing, before there was a material universe, God had a plan and a purpose. And this is where Paul takes us back to in his letter to the Ephesians. Back to the very beginning, in fact, before the beginning. And much of what Paul talks about in these beginning verses, in this first chapter, has to do with our identity. And we talked about the importance of knowing your identity, and in order for Paul to convey to you, to help us as believers understand who we are in Christ, he doesn't go back to our birth. He goes back to before the creation of the universe, of the world, of the known world. He goes back to a time when there was only God. And in God, God had a purpose. And out of that purpose that existed in God That he had, according to what Paul teaches us, according to the good pleasure of his will, God did what he did. And so, Paul continues on here, beginning in verse 15. So, he lays this out in the first 14 verses, and he says, You are what you are by the will of God. You are what you are, not because you earned it, not because you did something good, not because God saw anything good in you, because God had this plan and purpose before you existed. God had this plan and purpose to create a world and to create a people before there ever was a world and before there ever was a people. And what Paul is doing is he's bringing us back, he's stripping everything down, and he is saying to us, you are who you are by the grace of God. You have what you have by the grace of God. He says God has given to us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, Spiritual and heavenly are two words that don't mean immaterial, they mean eternal. Spiritual blessings are blessings that can never fade away, that can never pass away. They're not invisible blessings, they're tangible blessings. You have tangible blessings. You have blessings that are more real than this aluminum pulpit right here, but they're spiritual Not that they're immaterial, but they are eternal. And they are secured for you in heavenly places. They are secured for you in a place and in a way that nothing can take it. Nothing can steal it. Nothing can diminish it. And God has given to us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Where? In Christ. And so Paul is stripping everything back and he's saying, you are what you are. You are who you are. You have received what you have received. You have been given eternal blessings, unimaginable blessing in Christ. And he says, you've received it because it was God's good pleasure to give it to you. It was his will. It was his plan. It was his purpose. And we're going to see this even more clearly when we get next week into the second chapter of this letter to the Ephesians when Paul makes this famous statement that you are saved by grace through faith. It's not of works lest any man should boast. It is the gift of God. It is a gift of grace. And so Paul lays this out in the first 14 chapters. Now when he gets to Um, First 14 verses, now when he gets to verse 15, that's the therefore. Therefore, he says, church, here's, here's the deal. Here's the truth. This is why you have what you have. This is why God has done what he's done. This is why Jesus came. Because of his will, because of his purpose, because of his good pleasure. He has done what he has done. You need to know this. You need to understand this. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith and your love, Paul has heard of their faith in the Lord. He's heard of their love for the saints. Do you know that our love and our faith should be something that people hear of? It should be something that people know of. It should be something that people see and experience. And out of our faith in Christ should come our love for the saints. Our love for the saints is a natural overflow of our love for God. In reality, our love for the saints is a natural overflow of God's love for us. Here's how it works. God pours his love into us. You find this in, a, in a, the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Now we rejoice also in tribulation. Paul writes, sounds crazy, doesn't it? We rejoice also in tribulation. For we know that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because God has poured his love into our heart by his spirit. So who poured love into us? God poured love into us by his spirit and out of the love that god has poured into us guess what the overflow of that love should be poured out to one another paul says i've heard of your faith in the lord jesus and i've heard of your love for the saints jesus says in first uh, john writes in first john chapter 3 verse 11 for this is the message that we heard from the beginning that we should love one another 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loves is born of God and knows God. He that loves God, he that loves not, knows not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So Paul says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith, In the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. There is a genuine thankfulness that the faith and love of the saints has produced in Paul. And Paul's thankfulness, listen to this church, is centered in the grace of God that is working in the saints, producing their faith in Christ and producing their love for one another. Paul's expression of thankfulness is for the saints, but it is directed toward God. God's not thanking the saints for their love. He's thanking God for the love of the saints. Because Paul understands that the love that the saints have come to experience has come from God. And he says, I don't cease to make mention of you in my prayer, giving thanks to God for you. Paul knows that the faith and the love the saints give witness to is not a product of what they have done, but it is a product of what God has done in them. Our faith and our love is a product or a fruit, product, produce. When you go to the the grocery store and you need to buy apples, you don't go to the drug department, you go to the produce department. Love is a product it is produce of the fruit of the spirit it's produce that comes from the spirit living on the inside of us so while paul gives thanks for the willing obedience of the saints his thanksgiving is directed toward god in christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith So he says, I do not cease to give thanks to you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then Paul begins to tell specifically what he is praying. Here's Paul's prayer for the saints. My prayer is this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Let's stop there for a moment that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's prayer is one of thanksgiving for the faith and the love of the saints, but he goes on and he's praying specifically that the saints would come to a place of wisdom and revelation. Then he further addresses that. What's he, what's he praying for? When he prays that, that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. Here's what he's saying. He says, This is my prayer, church, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, What is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. So to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God is to have the eyes of your understanding enlightened. If you don't have light, what, what can you not do? Without light, what are you unable to do? You can't see. Right now, if we turned every light off in this place, it would be pitch black because we have no windows here. And you wouldn't be able to see. I wouldn't be able to read my Bible. I wouldn't be able to see your face. We can't see without light. Paul says, my prayer without ceasing is that you would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened that you would be able to see, that you would be able to know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul prays specifically for the saints, that they would have light to see and light to understand. Light gives the ability to see, and so Paul prays that God would enlighten them to know The prayer is that wisdom and revelation would come as the eyes of our understanding are opened and that we are made to see by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this letter wasn't written to you. It doesn't say to the saints who are in Taylor, but it was written for you. It was written to the Ephesians, but it was written for the saints in Taylor. It was preserved by God so that we could be here today and we could read this letter that Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul praised this prayer for the Ephesian church, God recorded this so that we would understand that we need the same thing that the Ephesians needed. We need to have the spirit of wisdom and Revelation we need to have the eyes of our understanding opened so that we could know, so that we could see. So that enlightenment would come to us. And in this enlightenment, we come to a knowledge and awareness of the hope of his calling that he's given us in our salvation. That is the reality of all that Christ has secured for us that is yet unseen, though it is known by faith. You and I don't see all that God has secured for us in Christ. That little verse, verse 3 in the first chapter of Ephesians, he has given to us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. That, that can be something you just pass over because it doesn't have any real meaning to you, or you can ponder you can think about that very short verse and you can not plumb the depths of what that verse means when it says that God has given to us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ and this is what Paul is writing this is what Paul is praying this is what Paul wants us he wanted the Ephesian church He wants the church to understand that what God has given us in Christ is so far beyond what we can naturally comprehend and understand that if we don't have spiritual help, if we don't have supernatural help, supernatural wisdom, supernatural revelation, if supernatural light does not come to us, we will not see, we will not know, and we will be left to our own devices to believe Out of our own imaginations, however we're pushed and pulled in the world to believe whatever it is that we want to come to believe. So he prays that light would come. That a knowledge and an awareness would come. Hope, what is hope? Hope speaks of that which is not seen. This is what Paul writes in Romans, for why do we still hope for that which we see? So the word hope there, the hope that you would know the hope of your calling, the hope of his calling. He has called you. Do you know the hope of his calling? Paul says in that sentence, what he's saying is the hope of his calling, we can't fully see it. We can't fully know it. We don't fully understand it, but by faith we know it's real. This is why the Scripture commands us, exhorts us to walk by faith and not by sight. Because if I'm only walking by sight, I'm not going to have much hope. But if I walk by faith... I have hope in what I cannot see, and it's known to me and it's made real to me because faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And faith is this fruit, this gift that comes to me from God. It's listed as one of the characteristics, one of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember, there's not nine fruit of the Spirit, there's only one fruit. And it's characterized by these words, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These aren't individual things that we get from God. This is, this is what the fruit of the Spirit is. And so Paul says, my prayer is that you would know the hope of His calling." That you would have, you would come to a knowledge of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now we have an inheritance because we're joint heirs with Jesus. But I want you to understand the inheritance belongs to Christ. You have become a joint heir because God has brought you into Christ. And apart from Christ, we don't have an inheritance. Because there was never an inheritance that belonged to me. The inheritance belongs to Christ. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm praying that you would come to a knowledge of the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Christ's inheritance is in the saints. This goes back to what Paul started with in chapter 1. That God had a plan before creation to create for himself a people, to create for his son a bride. You ever wonder why there's so many bride and wedding stories in the Bible? That God took the time to record for us how Jacob, how Isaac, how they came to Possess a wife. The first miracle recorded that Jesus did was at a wedding. Why? Because God's plan and purpose was to create for his son a bride. And Jesus came to get his bride. Later on in this very book, Paul tells us exactly. We don't have to wonder what marriage is about. The Bible defines what marriage is. This is why marriage cannot be between two men or two women. There is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It's same-sex mirage. It only looks like a marriage, but it's not a marriage. Because marriage can only be by the definition God gives it in His Word. And what it represents, what does it represent? Chapter 5 of Ephesians says marriage is... A mystery, Paul says, I speak concerning a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. When Adam says of the woman, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, the two shall become one. Jesus in Matthew 19 quotes the same verse out of Genesis. And he says, Did you, do you not know God made them male and female? This is marriage. But, but what's the greater purpose of marriage? The greater purpose of marriage is to give witness to Christ and the church. And This is Paul's prayer at the beginning of this letter here. He says, my prayer is that you would come to a knowledge of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, that the father has given the nations to the son, that from every tribe, from every tongue, both Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, that God has chosen for himself a people a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation is the way Peter describes it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says it's imperative, church, that you know the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints. You we're worth Jesus coming to die for. You're his inheritance. I'm his inheritance. It defines who you are. You didn't come to that place because of what you did. You didn't come to that place because you're better than the next person. You didn't come to that place by some series of events that you did. You came to that place by the grace of God. And in that day when we stand face to face with him, what what is the picture that the book of revelation gives us we cast our crowns back at the feet of jesus why because if we don't know it now when we see him face to face we're going to know that there was absolutely not one shred of anything that was within me that caused me to become his bride that caused me to become his redeemed that it was and is and only ever will be the grace of the lord jesus christ and of the father of glory that that brought me into relationship, that made me the inheritance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you church need to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints because if you begin to comprehend that truth, that reality, you will understand him differently and you will understand yourself and your place in this world differently. And you will begin to live for his glory. And you will begin to give thanksgiving to him because you will begin to understand that it is him and him alone that deserves and belongs the glory. And so he prays this That you would have an awareness of the glory that is by the grace of God in Christ. This reality that all who have been chosen in Him are not some pitiable collection of survivors of sin. But they are the glorious bride of Christ that has been made a new creation by His grace and to His glory. That our salvation was worth the life of the Son of God on Calvary for his glory in eternity. That's why when we get to the the end of this letter, Paul when he's he's not writing a marriage seminar, he's writing about Christ and the church, but he brings marriage into it because marriage is the natural picture that God created to give witness to Christ in the church. Don't get that backwards. Don't get that backwards. Understand that that what God has done, he's done to give witness to his son and what his son was sent here And what he did accomplish. Don't get it backwards and think that all of this is written for you. It's written to give glory to Christ. It's written to show us, to reveal to us what God has done in Christ. And we come to that section on marriage. And what does Paul say? Paul says marriage is this picture of Christ and the church. And he says in verse 27 that Jesus is bringing about the glorification of his bride. Look at it. Let's turn over a page or two in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 27. Talking about Christ. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. This is what Christ is doing he is bringing his church to glory. This is what Paul means in Romans chapter 8 when he says it's our destiny. We've been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. That's glory. And if you follow that out and read the rest of those verses there, you'll see that at the end of all of this is glorification. That God ultimately is going to bring us to glorification. Let me just read that to you because I think it's important. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. So you are the church. You are the people of God. You are the bride of Christ. And Christ is bringing you to glory to reveal the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This isn't about your glory. This is about his glory. We have been given the right the privilege to share in that glory Romans 8:29 for whom he foreknew for whom he foreloved for whom he saw before time began because he purposed to create us for whom He foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. Whom He justified, look at this, these He also glorified. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, that Christ is Bringing about the reality of a glorious bride. that's you and me, church. And Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 1:18 is that you would come to know that this is exactly what Christ is doing. Verse 19, Also that you would know what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power. A knowledge, that you would have a knowledge, an understanding, a comprehension of the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. A power that is according to His mighty power and not your own. You have no mighty power. You have no power. The Bible describes you as dead in sin, darkness, void of light. You have nothing until Christ calls light out of the darkness until Christ calls you from the dead, until Christ translates you from darkness into light. Paul says my prayer is that you would understand the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Don't be tricked into thinking that it's according to your power because it's not and then in verse 20 he says, This mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places this mighty power toward us who believe is the same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead to the right hand of the majesty on high Paul is praying that the believers know and understand what is the exceeding greatness of his mighty power that works toward us that works on our behalf if you feel powerless take heart It's not based on your power. It's based on his mighty power. And his mighty power never fails even when you've come to the end of your power. This is why Jesus says to Paul, Paul, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. When we feel like we've got some power, some strength to loan to God, God in His grace and in His goodness will allow us to come to the end of that because God forbid if He would ever allow us to mistakenly believe that there is something in us. It is His power. It is His exceedingly great power and mighty power that's working toward us and he goes on and he says that exceedingly that exceeding great power that's working toward us is a power that is far above all principality and power it's far above Might and dominion. It's far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul's covered all the bases here. He says the power that works on our behalf, the power that works toward us is above and greater than any other power anywhere in this age and in the age to come. The power of God working toward us is far above, greatly higher than all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age that is to come. In other words, the power of God toward us who believe infinitely dwarfs any other power or principality or might or dominion. It dwarfs every name that is named in this age and in that which is to come. Paul's prayer is for us to know that there is no greater power than his power toward us who believe. Do you, do you believe that, church? When you're tempted to be moved by your situation and circumstances, when you're tempted to be moved by the pain in your body, or the lack in your bank account, or the, the things that seem to have come against you that you have absolutely no power to stand against, I want you to remember the prayer of the Apostle Paul, who says that there is a power working toward us, an exceeding great power that's working toward us. It's not according to our power. It's not according to our mind. It's not according to our ability, but it's according to Christ and the mighty power that he possesses and the mighty power that he has directed toward us and in us. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Not only is this power that works toward us greater than any other power, but he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things recorded for us in Matthew 28:18 the words of Jesus All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth That's what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended to the father All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth go therefore and make disciples of the nations. Do you catch that, church? Jesus declared His all-powerful authority over everything in heaven and in earth. And He commands us, His disciples, to go therefore in His authority in the exceeding greatness of His power that works toward us, to go therefore and to make disciples. And if we believe that Jesus has been given that authority, if we believe that Jesus is truly Lord, that He is God Almighty, then what are we fearful of? What are we doubting? What are we lacking? Now, I didn't say that it would be easy, and neither did God. Paul was stoned, left for dead, beaten, shipwrecked. He should have died many times before they took his head in Rome. But God didn't let him die. It's not because men didn't try to kill Paul. It's because God wouldn't let Paul die. When it was time for Paul to die, guess what? They took his head off in Rome. But before that time came, when they left Paul under a pile of rocks and left him for dead, guess what God? He raised him up from the dead. When Paul was shipwrecked in the deep and should have drowned or been eaten by sharks, guess what? Paul got washed up on an island. When that snake latched onto his hand and he should have died from a poisonous snake bite, guess what? God didn't let him die. Why? Because it wasn't his time to die. Don't live your life as if it's depending on you. God knows your days. God knows my days. When it's my time to go, I'm going to go. And I'm not going to go before that time. And I'm not going to go however somebody else wants me to go. I'm going to go the way God wants me to go. So for Paul, it was having his head chopped off in Rome. For Peter, it was being crucified upside down in Rome. For others, it was being burned at the stake. For some, it was a went to bed at night and woke up in heaven. For others, it was a battle with cancer. For some, it was a battle with pneumonia. For others, who knows? God knows. That's who knows. God Knows. Do you trust him, church? This is what Paul is writing about to us. He's writing to the believers. We're believers. Do you trust God? Do you believe there's an exceedingly great and awesome, mighty power that works towards you? You've got to believe that because it's true. And if you don't believe that, if you're having problems, then cry out to God and say, God, I believe, help. My unbelief, that's a very scriptural prayer. So Jesus has been given the name that's above all names. The Father has put all things under His feet and gave Christ to be head over all things to the church. That means all who are in Christ have been placed with Christ above all things. Do you get that? He's the head, we're the body. All things are under His feet. Guess who the feet represent. They represent us. All things are under our feet as Christ is made head over all things to the church. Therefore, our position and our identity in Christ is one of authority in him. Verse 23. Let me read 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is the church, which is. His body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That is such an amazing verse that I can't even begin to, well, I can't begin to talk about it because we don't have time for it. Maybe you should go home and just meditate on those last few verses. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ and his body is the fullness of him who fills all in all. Realize there is no fullness apart from the church. This is why Paul prays that you would know the riches of his inheritance, the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There is no fullness apart from the fullness that is Christ and His body. Christ cannot be the expression of the fullness who fills all in all apart from His body, the church. The relationship of Christ and the church is recorded for us in Ephesians 5, verses uh, 30 and 32. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones. Please Please don't miss the magnitude of that statement that you are. That I am, that the church is the members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Before the foundation of the world, we were chosen and predestined to become one with Christ. Before the foundation of the world, God purposed to take a bride for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The bride of the Lamb is the church, the called out people of God. That's what church means. Ecclesia means the called out assembly. We are the called out assembly. We are the called out people of God who called us out Peter said God called us out of darkness and into light Christ has made us one with Him. This is what it means to be saved. This is what it means to be redeemed by His blood or to be born again of the Spirit. By grace, through faith, we are made a new creation and we are joined to Him as one flesh. We are members of His body, of His flesh, and of His bones and the two have become one flesh. That is, Christ and His bride, the church, have become one When Adam declares this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, it's nothing more than a picture in the natural of what would ultimately be fulfilled one day when Christ would come and Christ and his church, his body, would become one. That's what marriage represents. That's what marriage is picturing for us. That's what has happened to us in our salvation. We have become one with Christ. Therefore, we can't be a people that professes love for Jesus but does not love the church. The church is the very expression of Christ in the earth and we are commanded to love the church or to love the people of God, to love the brethren, the people that Christ died to save. And the source of this love is not from us but from the love of God that he has poured into us. By his spirit. So this is the command. To love one another. That the scripture gives us. Jesus says in John 13.34. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. As I have loved you. We love him. Because he first loved us. John writes. First John 4.19. Or the writer of Hebrews. that says let us consider one another. In order to stir up love. And good works not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. But exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The command to love one another cannot be fulfilled if we are separate or divided. It can only be fulfilled as we become one in Christ. And as we love one another as Christ has loved us. So as we commit to Christ, as we commit to one another, as we love Christ, as we love one another, we are giving glory to Jesus. We are making known the glory of his inheritance in the saints. We are to be committed to the glory of the church as Christ is committed to the glory of the church That's why he calls her his bride. And we are to love her the way Christ loves her, not conditionally, but unconditionally, out of his very grace and mercy demonstrated toward us in Christ. Is that always easy? No. Is it always essential? Yes, it is. This is what Paul was praying, and this is why Paul did not cease to pray for the believers. Our, listen church, our revelation of Christ has a direct correlation to the revelation of our salvation, the revelation of the church, and ultimately the revelation of who we are in Christ and who we are in this world. If you don't have a revelation of Christ... you don't have a proper revelation of who Christ is and what our relationship is to and in Christ you're going to be confused about who you are in this world. You're going to be confused about who you are to live to please who you are to be conformed to and what this life is all about. You'll live your life to please men. You'll live your life to please yourself. You'll live your life to please everyone and everything but God. And this is why Paul says, I do not cease to pray for you that you would know these things. So our salvation is not escaping hell. You realize there's a lot of people that come to church week in and week out who think their salvation is about escaping hell. That's not what your salvation is about. Your salvation is about being joined in union with Christ. It's about being in Christ. It's our union with Christ, and so it is our union with one another in Christ. So the lasting motivation should not be fear. The lasting motivation should be love. And we should live for His glory, for His glory, for His glory, Because of his love. So uh, let's get ready and come to the table. So I'd invite you to come up. Worship team. So, Paul's prayer is our prayer. It's my prayer that you would know. This table is a reminder of what we are to know. Jesus has made all of this possible because he really came and he really died. And this table is not just the reminder that we don't have to go to hell, this table is a reminder. That when we eat his body and drink his blood, we become one with him. And if we're not one with him, that means we're apart from him. And if we're apart from him, there is no life in us. And if there is no life in us, we have no hope. So this table is a table that gives us hope. Trust in Jesus. If you never have, trust him now. And come to the table.